Pray with me, and we will jump in God's word, okay? Our Father in heaven, your word tells uh, us, Paul tells Timothy, to preach the word in season and out of season. When it's hard, when you don't want to do it, and when we don't have words to say, you tell us to preach. And so, Father, I invite you to speak through your servant. I ask you to forgive me my sins. I ask you to build up your church. You love the bride of Christ, and you are tender and kind and good like a mother, and you are firm and strong like a father, and you pastor and nurture us and build us up. And so would you use this passage to do so for Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. So I'm going to read the end of 1 Corinthians 10 into 11.1. And um, I want to think about the theme uh, as we conclude our missions emphasis month. Uh, Our personal idolatry hinders our public witness. And I want that to sit there um, because I actually believe that the first work of missions, it isn't what we do out there. It's like the lordship of God right here. And when he satisfies us, then we will not be able to be silent. When his kingdom comes here, then we want everyone out there to know it. And so I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you where to go. I think we can be together in missions by every single one of us practicing regular, private repentance and idle destruction. When we do that, the world sees and they want to know the hope that we have. And so I'm going to read this section and jump right in. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and you are disposed to go eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone there does say to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the unbelieving Jews or to the unbelieving Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. They might be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Amen. One of the things that is beautiful about Scripture is we know the big story. 
We've seen the puzzle pieces put together where mankind, God created everything good, and then mankind transgressed and fell, and God from the beginning of time has been on a rescue mission to restore us back to a place that's even greater than Eden. We, we know the big story, and he's going to do that through the person and work of the Messiah. And then the beautiful thing about scripture is being into chapters and verses and books and trying to figure out like a puzzle how all these pieces fit together into the book and into the chapter and into the bigger story. And, and, and this is not, uh, uh, you probably don't think this is a missions, missions emphasis passage. Your mind is probably thinking like, where is he going to go with this? But I want you to think about a puzzle and piecing it together by the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about a funnel. And here's what I mean. Notice how the end of this chapter ends. Paul actually says, give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church. So the Jews are unbelieving Jews and the Greeks are unbelieving Greeks and the church are your brothers. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they might be saved. So whatever Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 10, it's getting to that point. I want you to live in such a way and experience the gospel in such a way that you are used by God in the salvation of people. And so whatever's going on in this book, it's, it's like a funnel. He's going to talk about idolatry. He's going to talk about God's protection over us in the midst of temptation to idolatry. And then he's going to build up to that one point. Everything I'm telling you is so that you might be a faithful witness for the loss. So that's where Paul's going. And so I want to look at three points. I'm going to jump right in. Who are you and what is God up to around you? That's the first point. Who are you and what is God up to around you? That you'll notice there seems to be a connection between 10 verse 1 all the way through 22 and then 23 through 11.1. And then you get this, what appears to be this random passage in verse 27. Look at it with me. And Paul says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of their conscience. And so it, it, it might feel really random and out of place that Paul's going to bring up this this, this, this uh, theoretical thing that, that, that what if an unbeliever invites you into the house and serves you food, then it, it seems so disconnected to what he's talking about, but it's not. Because in chapter eight and nine, Paul's already been talking about food offered to idols. He's already been talking about them eating food that offered to idols and idols are no real things, but, but there are demons behind the idols that you are having fellowship with. Paul has already condemned them for eating this food, causing their weaker brother. And he uses the word brother to stumble. Now his emphasis is not on a brother. It's on the unbeliever. 
I, I already see you don't love your brother enough to not eat, but let me also tell you the mythological implications for boasting in your freedom because your conscience clears you to eat this. Let me also tell you why this is destructive to the world. So that's the argument, but unbelievers. Now, when has Paul used this term unbelievers in the book? Because there's a theme here that is glorious. You might remember 1 Corinthians 6. Why do you go to court before the unbelievers? Why do you go before the unrighteous unbelievers and and let them settle your court? He says, is there not anyone among you wise enough to handle disputes? Do you not know that you're going to judge angels? Can you not handle these disputes? And what about your witness when you go into the court suing your brother or sister? What do unbelievers think about the gospel? So he's already concerned about unbelievers there in chapter six. Then you get to chapter seven. It's the marriage passage. And he says, if one of you who are Christians happened to be married to an unbeliever, you came to faith, you were already married, you came to know Jesus, they didn't, you want to divorce. But here's what I say to you. I say to you, if your unbelieving spouse wants to stay, he says, you do not divorce them. And he says, why? He says, wife, you beautiful, godly wife, how do you know if you will not save, same word here, your husband and you husband, you godly, glorious, redeemed man of God married to a non-believing wife, how do you know if the Lord will not use you to save your unbelieving wife? Okay, then you get to 1 Corinthians 14. That's the whole passage on their worship. And here's what the Corinthians were doing in worship. Everybody has a tongue and everybody's speaking and it is not in decency. It is not in order. And he says, but what if unbelievers come in and they hear all of y'all speaking in tongues? They're going to say, you're out of your mind. I don't know what's happening here. I'm out of here. And then Paul says, no, you stop speaking in tongues. Prophecy is better. Somebody exhorting them from the word so that the unbelievers can make sense of what you're saying and fall on their faces and worship Jesus. Do you see the, 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 the strand that Paul is plucking through the entire book when it comes to unbelievers? He always has their salvation in mind. Whether you're married to an unbeliever, don't divorce. God's going to save them through you. And when you come into your worship service, don't just think about you. Think about them. And can Jesus be discernible there in worship? And be slow to go to court before unbelievers because it will destroy your witness. In other words, Paul understands their new identity. They are saved. They are sons and daughters of the Lord set to live their lives in Corinth. And the gospel that comes to them that redeems them, Paul says, but I want it to go beyond you. That's their identity. Now, here's the second question. What is God up to? So we know the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Deuteronomy chapter six, and, and they would have to write scripture on their doors. They would have to talk about scripture as they went to work and as they 
did chores around the house. They would gather around table over dinner and talk about the scriptures. And then Moses says this beautiful thing. He says, and when your children ask you, why do we keep doing this stuff? Then you tell them. But what's the presupposition? The presupposition is God is at work. Our kids don't always want to come to church. They don't always want to stand up and sing. They don't always want to do family devotion. They don't always want you to say, well, Jesus is, well, daddy, what we got to eat? I always talk about with Jesus, right? Like they, they don't always want to hear it, but we still do it. Why? Because we believe that God is sovereign and he providentially works through these means so that one day their world falls apart. Or one day the Holy Spirit begins to draw them and then they're curious. This same kid who didn't want to go to church is the first one dressed beating you to the door. Why? We believe that God is providentially at work through the means of being faithful Christians day in and day out. He just shows up and in his own timing, he captures and promotes curiosity. But here's the mistake we make. We don't think that that also applies to non-Christians. Did you notice what Paul says? He didn't say, if you invite an unbeliever to your house. <laughs> he actually says, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner. What? Do you know what that presupposes? It presupposes that you as a Christian have been living differently. You've been praying, you've been repenting, you've been loving, you've been kind. You don't go to where you used to go with your old friends no more and they start to be curious. You start to be generous with your money and live a different way. And those same people that you used to do dirt with now are the ones saying, yo, what's up with you? I want to know about your changed heart. What happened? You come to my house. I'll, I'll fix the food. I want to know. Do you see what that presupposes? It presupposes that the same God who puts us on mission is the same God who is himself on mission. He is himself by his spirit calling non-believers to be curious and to have questions and his plan, his strategy is to make us new missional people who follow him and who love him. And he himself situates us providentially right where he has us so that we will bear truth of the gospel. This is what Paul is saying. I want you to know of your missional identity and I want you to make much of God's big providence. You know that's true for us, don't you, family? Jesus' longing is to redeem you and to love you and to make you new and to adopt him into his family and to blot out your transgressions. His 
goal is to rescue his people. But he doesn't stop there. He puts a new heart inside of us. And the same grace that we have tasted, we want others to taste. That's who you are. That the yous in this passage are all plural. And Paul is saying, if an unbeliever invites any of you all in their house and any of you all are disposed to go, flee idolatry, all of you, all of you imitate me. Paul is actually saying there is not one of you who names the name of Jesus who is not a missionary of Jesus. And the same God who saves you, sends you, is also what? Partnering with your new identity providentially to put you in that family and to put you in that vocation and to put you on that particular street where you live and to have you be living at this particular time in history. His big providence is at work in all things so that our identity and his providence are, 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 are melded together that we might be a light for the lost. And we should all experience beautiful tension, right? We love the church. The saints in the land are the excellent ones. We are close to the body. We love the family of God. Some of you have the code to my alarm. You know what my spare key is. I trust you more than I trust some earthly family members. And some of you in this church, you've told my wife and I that if we both die, y'all are getting our kids. We're family. And we love each other. But there's a tension that we have to live in, right? And that tension is we don't want to fill your life up with stuff that's always here, that we lose our eyes and our hearts for the world around us. And so Christians have to learn this breathing in and that going out. We have to learn that, that digesting and eating and savoring and going to expend that the Christian life is this beautiful, glorious tension of being with the body and being for the world being with the saints and being amongst unbelievers enough so that they see us and say, can we go get dinner? And the God who demands this, saying you're not going out there alone, I am providentially working with you. I saw this yesterday when we were with Kelly and Angela. And we were around them and we were praying and the body just showed up. And as we were praying, you could hear like the wailing of the other family. And then Kelly, he says, man, I need to get their numbers. Like they need to know Jesus. Did you catch that? That he is right there with the body, that, that, that he is grieving with hope. And even though like, he is still concerned about this other family, like that, that is what it is. 
that we lean into the body, we love the body, and we think about the people who don't have hope or light. Which moves us to the second point. What can threaten this? And it, it can't thwart it. it, it can't stop it because God is sovereign and all of his people will come to him and his sheep will hear his voice and they will come. But, 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 but what can appear to threaten our missional influence? And you can say the world and I would say yes. And you could say Satan, that he has a veil over the eyes and the minds and the hearts of unbelievers that they not see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And you could say powers and principalities in the demonic. And you could say sinners who really love their sin. They can all th threaten but never thwart. But this passage, it says that one of the biggest threats to our missional impact in the world is the person you look at in the mirror every day. This passage is about idolatry. And the argument that Paul is building is, is unless you repent of your idols, when you go into the house of the unbeliever, that you're going to champion your rights, that you're not going to be thinking about how your actions and your words impact them. You're going to go in there self-righteously. He said, but I want you to go in there with them a different kind of way. And the only way you go in there with them a different kind of way is if your heart has been delivered from the things that you love more than Jesus. That that's the reason that we don't care that's the reason that we don't share our faith. It's because we love this world more than the world to come. That we love pleasure, we love money, we love power, we love grumbling, we love complaining. Like we just love these other things. And what they do is when we give our affection and our attention and our emotions to those things, then you can guarantee that what we're not giving ourselves to is loving this world to life. And that's the warning that's in the passage. Paul is actually saying, he says, hey, consider your forefathers. They were in bondage in Egypt. And they cried out for a deliverer, and God gave them a deliverer. And Moses led them out, and they cut through the sea and walked on dry ground. And when the sun baked them and would have destroyed their shoes, God put a cloud over them to shade them. And when they didn't have food, God made it rain manna. God raised up quail. And when they didn't have water, they had a rock. And this rock in this passage seems to follow them right around. And the rock was the pre-incarnate Christ. Like what Paul is doing is giving them a history lesson. And what was their goal? Their goal was to come out of bondage and go to their own land and to be holy and to love the Lord with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to practice holiness by abstaining from the idols of the world around them. And Paul says they benefited from all of this stuff. And then he says, but the Lord was not pleased with them that he sent fiery serpents 
that they grumbled and they complained and they, they loathed their leaders. They got tired of manna. They got tired of water. And then it says God wasn't pleased with them. And they died. That whole generation in the wilderness. They built the golden calf and they sat down and rose up to play. They danced and they prostrated themselves before it, Exodus 32. In Numbers 25, they were sexually immoral. They had sex with the Baal-worshipping people of Moab and they sat down and worshipped and ate unto their gods. They put Christ to the test in Numbers 21, growing impatient with God, asking Moses, what is God doing? Why has he brought us out here to kill us? We don't like this water. We don't like this food. We hate this food he's giving us. And the Lord sent fiery serpents. And then they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. We don't even want y'all to be our leaders anymore. Even though Caleb and Joshua says, hey, stop it. We've seen the land. Be of good courage. And those people wanted to stone them. And finally, in Numbers 14, God says, I'm done. Anyone 20 years of age or older that grumbles shall die. Only Caleb and Joshua and your children shall enter. Their idolatry was dangerous. It destroyed them. Their idolatry distorted their new identity. Their idolatry decimated their ability to be light to the nations. Their idolatry distracted them from mission. And why is it in the passage? Notice what Paul says in verse 6 and 11. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, Corinthians, it appears that history is going to repeat itself. Y'all played the whore with the idols in Moab. And what y'all are doing in Corinth right now by going into the prostitutes in the temple, it's the same thing. Y'all were, they, they were grumbling against Moses and, and, and against Aaron. And y'all are grumbling, I follow Paul and I follow Cephas and I follow Apollos. And you sat down and you ate of the idol meat that they were worshiping. And that's exactly what you guys are doing. So in the next couple chapters, Paul is going to actually say, and that's why some of you have died. You see what Paul is saying? Oh, Corinthians. Oh, Corinthians, be killing your idols or your idols will be killing you and killing the mission. And this is here for us, family. We have been baptized into Christ. We have tasted his goodness. We have walked through the waters we have Holy Spirit in us. We have benefited from God's riches. And sexual immorality is present in the church. And the church can be a place of grumbling where people are always grumbling and complaining against leaders and what leaders do and don't do. And the church can be a place where leaders grumble and complain against the people and what the people are not. 
And it can be a place where we're tired of the kind of the faithful, normative, overtime means of grace. We got to find what's new and what's, what's, what's sexy and what's sleek. And we might not make idols like, like Exodus 32, but we have these idols of comfort and these idols of power and these idols of protection and safety and these idols of pleasure. And, and when we're pursuing those idols, you can bet that we're not pursuing the world to life. That we're not in unbelievers' home because we love our homes too much. We don't go to their tables because we love our own tables and our own kind too much. They don't invite us because our lives don't look different. And every one of us in this room is guilty. Rich Velotis, in his book, Deeply Formed Life, he says, there's a saying in our church, Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. By this, we mean that all of us have inherited negative sin patterns that seem to run in our families. And did you notice what Paul does? He actually says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under a cloud. He's actually telling this multi-ethnic church, that you're starting to look like your fathers in the wilderness and their father, Adam. That's why I know that we all must be killing our idols, that that is one of the greatest things that we can do to be on mission. It is to kill idols by the Spirit in private. It's to not tolerate it. It's to flee. It's to hate them. And to fight them with God's power and his spirit and his word. That when a people can do that in private and commit themselves to it, you can turn the world upside down. H.B. Charles posed this question. He said, if Jesus were to come in your home and grant you everything you prayed for last week, how many unbelievers would be saved? We are a threat to missions. But there's good news in the passage. We might threaten, but we're never thwarting because Jesus is Lord. And so what are we to do? That's the third question. Be practicing repentance regularly. And you will be a great witness publicly. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, authority on heaven and on earth and under the earth. He says, lo, I am with you even until the end of the ages. He has authority over the demonic. He triumphed over Satan on the cross. Demons hear him and they tremble. And unbelievers, he can summon them to life. And the same Jesus that has that authority also has authority over us. He is such a good God that he will not let us stay in our idols. He will break us free. And he will deliver us, family. He will do it. And what's the first sign of awakening? Because he will awaken his church. He's going to show us who we are to be in him. 
And he's going to show us the ways that we fall short. And then he's going to move us to repent. And repenting is twofold. It's acknowledging our own sin and understanding the guilt that comes with it and turning from it. And that's why Paul is saying, don't become idolaters. It's dangerous. Therefore, flee it all. All of you be fleeing your idols, be killing. This is the practice that we all must be doing. And what a fitting time of year to be reminded of this. Easter is coming. Jesus' sacrificial death is coming. And this time of year, we're forced to remember it was my sin that put him there. And the early church had a practice of, of Lent. And this is what Esau Macaulay says. He says, the church presumes that the Christian life is long and all of our zeal fades. And it's not just some of us, but it's all of us. Over time, we get comfortable in our sins and they become a part of who we are, a portion of the spiritual architecture of our lives. They are a limp that we get used to walking with. And so we have included within our lives this season in preparation for Easter for us to recapture our love for God and his kingdom and to cast off those things that so easily entangle us. Lent can be a season where we examine our own idols and discern the best way to tear them down. Jesus invites us to name them. Paul gets really specific with sexual immorality and grumbling. The gospel says that we can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I love money more than you and I love my safety more than your kingdom and I love sex and pleasure like more than you and when we come to Jesus like with that posture and that honesty and that openness what do you think Jesus is gonna say She's going to say, come, I understand. I gave my body for you. I gave my life for you. I suffered and died in your place. Repentance is acknowledging our idols and turning from them and going to Jesus and naming the things that have allegiance in our hearts and giving that to him and then remembering by faith that he has come not for the righteous but for the sinners and that he freely pardons sinners and we get to at the feet of the cross experience his tenderness and his mercy and his compassion and here's the question what happens to the person who does that? That. When you find yourself at the feet of the cross, freely pardoned, forever a part of this koinonia, this fellowship of the body and the blood and the family of God, that you hear Paul tell them, he calls them my beloved of all things. He calls them my beloved in verse 14. He calls them brothers. Like, why is he calling them what they are not acting? Because he gets the gospel. 
The gospel says you may not be acting like it, but you're still my brother. You're still the beloved. And it is because of the true beloved. What happens when we go there? Do we have to be commanded to tell the good news? <laughs> nope. It's the greatest news ever. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we and him would become righteous. That God adopts sinners into his family. That there is a kingdom coming that knows no end. And, and we want you unbelievers to taste and know that this God is good. You see, the, the work before doing anything out there, saints, is going back to the cross again and again. And again and again, and when you stay there long enough, you want the whole world to know about the beautiful love of Jesus. I'll close with some words by Lecrae. What would happen, saints, if we all embrace this missional identity and partner with God's mighty providence? What would happen if we all privately did the work of repenting of our idolatry and experience God's lavish grace, we'll tell the world. This is what Lecrae writes. I was so dead I couldn't hear you, too deep in sin to come near you. You drew me in, you cleaned me up, so take me home, beam me up. Before you do, just let me tell the truth and let these folks know that I done seen your love. It's everlasting, it's infinite, it goes on and on, you can't measure it. Your love so deep, you suffered and took pain. You died on the cross to give me a new name. Ain't nothing like I've seen before. I got a beam and glow. I was low down and dirty, but you cleaned me, Lord. You adopted me. You keep rocking me. I'm going to tell the whole world ain't nobody stopping me. You see? When you truly get what's happened to you and I through the cross, we're like a billboard and a radio on blast to the world. Let me let you meet this Jesus. May that be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I do pray that when we take our seats, that your spirit would be at work. Lord, make us be people on mission together, which starts with us all taking seriously the call to flee and to kill and to destroy and may you continue, Lord, by your grace to lavish us with your mercy. And may we cooperate with you in your big providence to go where you have us and to proclaim the greatest news of the most beautiful person to ever walk this earth. Do it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.